0: Welcome to Scientifica Radio. I'm Raqib. And I am Brit. And uh, on today's show, we have a, a month of, of science recap, right? Yes,
1: so a uh, little scientific thing that happens last month. Uh-huh. And uh, we will hear uh, Evelyn, Selena, and ourselves uh, telling us uh telling you in fact uh,
0: <laughs> what we uh, picked in uh, the science news so uh every um every month every week there are studies that are published in academic journals um there are a lot of a lot <laughs> in fact I, I learned
1: recently that there is 7000 articles
0: published uh-huh. every yeah day okay wow so that's a lot. And, that, and, and those are, you know, the lives of 7,000 people that are so dedicated to that one publication um, yeah. that don't often get picked up. So we're going to do our best to highlight a few of the uh, standout studies that have happened this month. Mm-hmm. And hopefully this will be a reoccurring thing that we do. Yeah. Maybe a monthly, a monthly, a monthly, a monthly recap. recap. Yeah, maybe, monthly. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So first up um, for everyone is uh, a great clip put together by uh, one of our contributors, Evelyn.
1: So just uh,
2: L.A. I hope you enjoy it. Can you imagine how amazing it would be to enable somebody with paralyzed legs to rise to their feet and walk again? This has long been considered impossible and just a kind of miracle promised by faith healers. But what if clever scientists and electricity could make this possible? In the new field of bioelectronic medicine, doctors may soon make what seemed to be a miracle a reality. New experiments published this month in the journal Nature using paralyzed monkeys have shown the way towards that goal. This seems to be amazing, but let's try to understand how this new technique works. How is walking possible in the first place? Walking is made possible by a complex interplay among neurons in the brain and the spinal cord. Electrical signals originating in the brain's motor cortex travel down to the lumbar region in the lower spinal cord where they activate motor neurons that coordinate the movement of muscles responsible for extending and flexing the leg. Any injury to the upper spine can cut off communication between the brain and lower spinal cord. Both the motor cortex and the spinal neurons may be fully functional, but they are unable to coordinate their activity or to communicate with each other. So the goal of the study was to re-establish some of that communication. In this new research, an international group of researchers developed what they call a brain-spinal interface. This interface is a pill-sized electrode array implanted in the brain to record signals from the motor cortex. This neurosensor sends then the signals gathered by the brain chip wirelessly to a computer that decodes them and sends them wirelessly back to an electrical spinal stimulator Implanted in the lumbar spine below the area of injury To calibrate the decoding of brain signals, the researchers implanted the brain sensor and wireless transmitter in a healthy monkey. The signals transmitted by the sensor could then be mapped onto the animal's legs movements. They showed that the decoder was able to accurately predict the brain states associated with the extension and flexion of leg muscles. The ability to transmit brain signals wirelessly was critical to this work. Wired brain sensing systems limit freedom of movement, which in turn limits the information researchers are able to gather about locomotion. The researchers combined their understanding of how brain signals influence locomotion with spinal maps, which identified the neural hotspots in the spine responsible for locomotor control. That enabled the team to identify the neural circuits that should be stimulated by the spinal implant. With these pieces in place, the researchers then tested the entire system on two monkeys with lesions that spanned half of the spinal cord and the thoracic spine. Monkeys with this type of injury generally regain functional control of the affected leg over a period of a month. The study showed that with the system turned on, the animals began spontaneously moving their legs while walking on a trade mill. Kinematic comparisons with healthy controls showed that the lesion monkeys, with the aid of a brain control simulation, were able to produce nearly no- normal locomotor patterns. Although this new study might raise hope for humans with spinal cord injuries, there are some limitations and much more work needs to be done. For instance, while the system used in this study successfully transmitted signals from the brain to the spine, it lacks the ability to return sensor information to the brain. The team was also unable to test how much pressure the animals were able to apply to the affected leg. While it was clear that the limb was bearing some weight, it wasn't clear from this work how much exactly. There were also engineering challenges in the effort to build a brain-spine interface that worked for freely moving monkeys. The researchers didn't want any entangling wires, so the brain implant had to be wireless wireless, and send its data to an external computer. And there was a lot of data. The 96 electrode array implanted in the part of the motor cortex that controls the back legs sent out 40 megabytes of data per second. Decoding the signal recorded in the brain was another enormous challenge, this one for the software team. The final challenge was to get the movement command to the monkey's spinal cords. Again, the researchers wanted a wireless system, so the monkeys were little vests containing transmitters that the data through skin and tissue to a small pulse generator implanted in the muscles between the ribs. The pulse generator then sent the electrical signal through wires that connected to the electrodes sitting on top of the spinal cord. Overall, this research project is an exciting example of bioelectronic medicine, a new field that leveraged neuroscientists' growth ability to understand the electrical signals neurons use to communicate. Neurons in the brain fire with electrical impulses that control every aspect of our bodies and behavior. And electrodes can pick up these patterns of pulses as they arise in the brain and course through the nervous system. Despite the limitations, the research sets the stage for further studies in primates and at some point, potentially, a rehabilitation aid in humans. Until then, let's keep the research up in order to help those in need. If you want to read more about the subject, go to our Facebook page to find out more.
0: And like Evelyn said, we're going to be uh, posting that extremely interesting study on our Facebook page, Scientifica Radio, um, that was published in Nature. Yeah, and it's kind study. of science fiction for me. <laughs> yeah no it's uh it's super interesting and of course uh it took years in the making to of publish course. uh and
1: so so many things to mm-hmm. put together it's yeah
0: really impressive it is super impressive what we can what what we can think of <laughs> um so that uh so that was Evelyn as we mentioned uh, and we also have another clip from Selena a new contributor.
1: Yeah, Selena and uh, she will talk to, uh, about a new um, tool for uh, every scientist around the world uh, based on uh, intellig- uh, artificial intelligence. So uh, it's
0: a very uh, hot topic. Yeah. Uh, filled with a you know a little bit of fear that's been injected into the conversation of AI. Yeah, um, but it can be useful sometimes. Well, let's hear what Selena has to say.
3: <laughs> and that is the sound of new scientific discovery. Nowadays, most scientific research begins with the searching of what others have done in the field. Discovery is not discovery if someone else has already discovered it. Because of this, scholarly search engines like Google Scholar and Web of Science is extremely important. Google Scholar, for example, have access to over 160 million articles, estimated by a group in Cornell University in 2014. One problem that arises with having access to this huge amount of knowledge is the access also to bad knowledge, quote-unquote. It's not always straightforward to find the most relevant, current, and well-respected information in this vast sea of information. A group at the Allen Institute of Artificial Intelligence is developing a new scholarly search engine to address just that problem. The solution is a smart air quotation search engine called Semantic Scholar. This site was launched last year, starting with only three million articles focusing in computer science. And now, this month, thanks to the connection with the sister institute, Allen Institute for Brain Science, Semantic Scholar now includes 10 million articles. As opposed to Google Scholar's method of using keywords, Semantic Scholar leverages artificial intelligence to combat the information overload, a slogan on the website of the non-for-profit Allen Institute of Artificial Intelligence. According to the website, some of the project features in development include the ability to provide an overview or quickly find the most relevant survey papers for a topic. And I tried the website myself at semanticscholar.org. The landing page is a dark blue with the orange font that reads, cut through the clutter, home in on key publications, citations, and results. The Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence is aimed for developing artificial intelligence for the common good. It is the creation of Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen. And the institute is aimed at using AI as a tool for common good. And the mission is to contribute to humanity through high impact AI research and engineering. Artificial intelligence is undoubtedly an unstoppable force. It's everywhere in our everyday lives. It's exciting and uplifting to see artificial intelligence being integrated in how we do science itself. Until next time, I challenge you to pay attention to how AI have already infiltrated our lives and think of ways that AI could benefit our lives in the future. And I wish you a happy Friday.
0: Thanks, Lena, for wishing us a happy Friday. I know that there was more to get out of that uh, <laughs> that clip, but that was really nice. <laughs> this early in the morning, um, really, really interesting research or uh, application yeah, um, happening. Yeah,
1: it's it, it's already in my uh, favorites in, in in on Firefox or Safari or so on because it's so useful to mm-hmm. find something. I just
0: want to explore that. Um, also, the problem of uh, you know, we we often kind of praise ourselves for producing so much science and um, and having kind of an abundance of resources. Mm-hmm. But at what point do you say uh, this is? You know, this is a lot of noise to filter through. Exactly. And yeah, like Selena mentions in her in her clip, uh, it's really hard to sh- to sort out the the good from the rubbish and the in between. Um, so really, again, really interesting science happening. Yeah. Kind of geeking out here.
1: <laughs> and <laughs> science fiction again.
0: AI, yeah. Um all right. Well, please I I hear you tell me that you have a very interesting interview. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I, I met uh,
1: someone here. So uh, I met uh, Luis Barreto, who is a professor at the University of Montreal Department of Pediatrics. And he is also a researcher at the uh, St. Justin University Hospital Center. Mm-hmm. And so he works in uh, genetics and immunology. And uh, yeah. So last month, he published in Cell, which is also... Uh, it's a big one. It's a yeah, big publication. Big one. Uh, it's a a really an interesting article because it was... uh, So he's showing that Americans from African descent have a stronger immune response to infection compared to Americans from European descent. So that's quite new. Okay. And uh, so first I, I, I was... Uh, I asked him, so what is happening with our si- immune system so just to understand uh, the basics the basics
0: yeah that we all share okay
4: So basically, our immune system is um, it's evolving with 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 different pathogens that we have to to face and um, so in that respect, we, uh, in this particular study, we tried to understand how the immune system of, the, of people that live in Africa, of African descent and European descent, has evolved differently to, to probably adapt to different pathogenic environments. So what we did was really try to compare how innate immune cells, in this particular case macrophages, respond to infectious agents and how that response differs as a function of the genetic ancestry of the individuals. What we saw is that uh, individuals of African ancestry tend to respond more strongly to, to bacterial infections as compared uh, to individuals of European ancestry. And uh, more specifically, we were all also able to show that like the more uh, you have of African ancestry in your genome, the faster and the better you are at killing the bacteria, for example. That was one of the main findings. And then we are also able uh, to show that those differences are largely uh, genetically controlled. So basically they result uh, from certain polymorphisms that differ in allele frequency between European and African descent individuals
1: you choose two bacteria. Can you explain us what uh, you did with them?
4: In this particular study we focused on bacteria. We decided to study these two bacteria because we know that they activate different pathways of the innate immune system so we wanted to have like a broad picture of how the innate immune response have evolved and by studying these two bacteria we cover most of the of the innate immune pathways that are activating during a, an innate immune process.
1: So what are the, the pros and the cons of having a strong response against the bacterial infections?
4: So having a strong inflammatory response in response to bacterial infection in principle is going to be beneficial in terms of fighting the infectious agent. And uh, so one can speculate that Africans will be better off at killing and eradicating bacteria, for example, upon an infection. That being said, that same strong inflammatory uh, response might be deleterious for other type of diseases, as for example, diseases that involved the dysregulation of the immune system, and also such as inflammatory diseases, autoimmune disorders. So, so basically, all it's dependent on the context and what's good in a given context. As for example, in a pathogenic environment where infectious diseases are very predominant, might be deleterious when you live. And now live in a different environment where pathogens are less important and now that same exacerbated response is going to be deleterious in terms of the development of inflammatory disorders for example.
1: Do we already know that people from African ascent have more uh, autoimmune disease than people from European ascent?
4: So most epidemiological data suggest that people of African descent tend to have a higher prevalence of diseases that involved an exacerbate inflammatory response. So there are definitely marked differences in susceptibility to diseases such as lupus or sporiasis or even the risk and mortality rates with sepsis, for example, they are much higher in people of African descent. So we do have those data that suggest that there's definitely an increased risk of inflammatory disorders in African descent individuals. That being said, you know, those epidemiological studies are strongly confounded by, by the fact that there's, there are environmental differences that we cannot control for, such as difference in socioeconomic status and so forth. But uh, up to this point, it wasn't clear whether those differences were mainly driven by difference in socioeconomic status poorly, for example. So I don't think that's the case now, because we do see these very strong biological differences.
1: Where does the difference come from?
4: So here we are going to go and start speculating. There's no way that I can ever prove this. But uh, so one speculation to why people of African descent will have a uh, a stronger and uh, inflammatory response is that Historically, they have been living in an environment that is more where pathogens are more prevalent, so the pathogen load is higher, right? So, uh, as compared to, to, the, to the group of individuals that left Africa 60,000 years ago, and basically they were they start like moving towards a, an environment that is more where the density of pathogens is uh, supposedly lower. So, if you are in an environment where pathogen loads play a huge selective pressure, at that point you are basically going to be favoring a strongly inflammatory response to basically fight those pathogens. Once you leave uh, Africa and you now go to an environment where pathogens are less of, an, uh, of a selective pressure, like you could speculate that now that same strong inflammatory response becomes somewhat deleterious, and at that point you are going to basically favor alleles and mutations that actually reduce the inflammatory signal. And that could explain why we now see these differences between Europeans and African uh, individuals.
1: Do you plan to study uh, the response against uh, viruses and uh, parasites?
4: Yeah, so that's definitely like one way that we like to go is just basically – uh, broaden up the panel of pathogens and uh, and immune stimuli that we can look at. So, like like you like you said, like so far we have just looked at bacterial responses, in particularly listeria and salmonella. So we would like to really go much broader and uh, and just see whether the differences that we are observing uh, in response to these bacteria are also shared in response to other pathogens like viruses, parasites, as you said. And um, so the other aspect that we would like to explore is the is basically try to see if there are also differences in the dynamics of of, of the of the innate immune response. So so far we have just looked uh, at one time point after infection of these cells. So we would like to see what happens if we were to look at multiple time points and uh, and really see if there are genetic variants that are actually altering the dynamic process of the response. So, uh-
1: So, as you can see, Dr. Barreiro's work is to understand the way we defend ourselves against pathogens. And uh, he explores if there is a genetic variation between different populations. But does his work have an impact on our daily life?
4: So I think at this point it's too early to claim that, to be honest. I think it highlights the fact that there's important variation. In immune responses are between individuals, even beyond the ethnicity, because even among European descent individuals or just among African descent individuals, people still respond very, very differently to these same infectious diseases. So ultimately, uh, we would like to be able to use this molecular response as a test or a prognostic of as to why someone would respond to, for example, a treatment or a vaccine and so forth. But that would imply to actually being able to make the direct link between the differences in immune response that we are observing and susceptibility to very specific diseases or, or, or differences in response to vaccines and so forth. So we haven't done that link yet. Uh, so the, in, in the current study, we just choose healthy individuals. So we are just really characterizing diversity in the general population without necessarily making direct link with disease susceptibility. So in the future, we would like to move that way by doing similar studies, but looking at people that, for example, Uh, have autoimmune diseases or inflammatory disorders and see if we can make the connection between a particular type of response and susceptibility to those diseases.
1: So this is quite interesting, especially in the wake of personalized medicine. But I was also interested in the origin of uh, the idea because in this study we have a mix of immunology, microbiology and evolution at work Mm -hmm. and for me it's so fascinating.
4: The main motivation for me is the fact that I've for, for a long time being studying uh, the evolution of the immune system and uh, and one of the things that people have speculated for a long time is that during the process of what we call the out of Africa exodus so when basically modern humans left Africa to colonize the world that they had to adapt to new pathogenic environments and and if that's true uh, one will predict that through that process of adaptation that the immune systems of Europeans and African individuals as as diverged but that's something that people have never actually formally looked at so that was the main motivation Innovation to start looking at differences in immune response between the two populations to really basically try to make a direct link between divergence in immune responses and, and natural selection. So Because so, that's something else that we actually show in this study is the fact that the differences that we are observing between Europeans and Africans are at least in part accounted by different adaptive processes. So we do see that natural selection accounted for, for a significant amount of the differences that we observe. Natural selection never goes away. You cannot escape it. So definitely it's still at work. What's happening today, it's not something that we can actually measure because it's just too recent, but uh, but definitely natural selection keeps playing an important role. Even if now, of course, there's like medicine and all that kind of counters some of the effects but it's still it's still happening definitely
1: so dr Barreiro, uh does not only work on uh, on that so he's doing also the same kind of work on uh, animals because not every species has the same reaction to different pathogens so uh, for example he told me that some uh, monkeys uh, like as we are also monkeys, mm-hmm. kind of, uh, have a strong reaction to sepsis. So uh, it's just our immune system that freaks out, and others don't. So uh, why does some monkeys do and others not? And what? And it's the same in other species. So uh, it's still working on this, this to, to understand the, the evolution. And uh, yeah, so that's. Uh, that's uh, fascinating for me,
0: as I said. Yeah, and uh, you got to talk uh, to him in person, which is always interesting to hear from uh scientist perspective uh, directly um, and so where if our, our listeners want to find out more about the study published in cell in cell yeah, yeah
1: I will p- I will put a link in uh, Facebook and uh, on uh, our website uh, to go to the to the study and uh, some article that uh, were made uh, from it
0: perfect and also let's take this opportunity to say we are a very new uh, kind of show, podcast, um, and uh, we're all about uh, accessible science, science communication, and we want to know what you all want to hear, anything uh, that kind of puzzles you about science, anything that you want to expand your knowledge on, anything uh, that you think uh, might be interesting yeah, for us, because there is, uh, you
1: know, science stuff, but also science communication, science event, uh, where you want to go or you mm-hmm. hear of and you just uh, want some heads on it. So uh, ask uh, us questions at uh, science or or message at
0: ckut.ca or Facebook message us, uh, exactly. because, you know, uh, as Selena mentioned uh, earlier on, there's a lot of science out there. So uh, if you want to help us narrow that down, uh, that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, and of
1: course all 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 of the all of us, the the team, so uh, we go in our specific interest. Mm-hmm. And maybe they do not cover all of yours. So uh, if you want to e- to hear from anything, just let us know.
0: Yeah. So uh with that said, I think uh, we'll wrap up uh the show. Uh, brief uh, but briefly before we do, uh I want to talk about a very interesting study mm-hmm. which is part of a series of studies uh really so um this idea of eternal youth
3: Ooh <laughs> yeah never <laughs> raging <laughs> well you this know so hot money money <laughs> money <laughs>
0: <laughs> um but yeah no so it's it's something that we you know we talk about quite uh, excessively on the media uh about the idea of uh, staying young and beautiful yeah. um but also uh now with the prevalence of alzheimers and dementia mm-hmm. and the deterioration of uh neuronal c- connectivity as we get older yeah. the deficiency of uh proteins um uh being able uh to be at the correct i guess uh, efficient levels or yeah. or deteriorating as i said uh it's something that uh, is quite a prevalent thought in the science world and so uh scientists think that they're they're onto something so in mm-hmm. in the past couple of years uh this idea of reversing aging by get this putting young blood into older people well this is
1: uh, a film a science fiction film no, it's, it's today <laughs> no no this
0: is this is all real uh, okay. this is primarily happening uh, in California in Stanford uh, so surprising yeah <laughs> <laughs> where where the youthful want to remain right it's uh, California comes to mind uh, but very interesting I mean so before I go into the study that was published in nature this month I um, this is not a new concept, which is no. so historically. If we go back to the 16th century, um, oh my god, this is far. No, this is yeah, and I'm, I'm, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't lying about going back. Um, so you know, a German uh, scientist uh, Andreas Labarvius uh, conducted experiments where he would uh, put young blood into uh, to to older men uh, to see if their arteries would work better. Um, but during this period, uh, the idea of transfusing blood into yeah. humans didn't work out so well because there wasn't enough scientific knowledge. So it was o- actually. On the, on the rhesus and uh, all the, the transfer of blood. Exactly. Blood- so so <laughs> what was really interesting is uh, that it was banned. Of course. The Pope banned it even. So now we have a whole bunch of studies that are coming out. We don't have time to talk about it, but I'll post it on the Facebook page. Mm -hmm. And uh, it starts off with my study. So... Uh, mice, uh, young mice uh, giving their blood to older old mice or yeah. being conjoined and sharing that blood oh, um, yeah. and they're so in
1: kind of the, the same uh, in, in one same Uh, circuit?
0: uh well b- so before they were actually uh, sewed and conjoined together mm. and now they're coming up with new ways to transfer the mm-hmm. blood so we have to mm. to wrap it up but I'll put that on the Facebook page